Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Tennis Abstract podcast. The Tennis Abstract podcast is weekly, we hope. I am Jeff Sackman with my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hi, Jeff. It is Monday, May 8th, as we're recording this. Play has started for the day in Madrid, but we're mostly going to talk about the up week ahead of us and, and what happened last weekend. So let's kick things off with the men's side of the, of the draw in Madrid. The big news this past week, Carl, has been that Novak Djokovic dropped basically his entire team in his personal form of shock therapy. And this week he's, he's in Nadal's half of the draw. Uh, of course, he has some matches to win before he gets that far. But Carl, we've talked about this almost every week since we started this podcast, is what, what we're expecting from Djokovic going forward since he's been so inconsistent this year. Do you think this switch is going to, to make a difference? Do you expect him to be making a deep run this week? Well, so those are, in a way, two separate questions. I think that it, he very well can make a deep run this week. There, there's no reason to count him out in any tournament because even though he has been inconsistent, let's say, these last 11 months since the French Open, he's still probably overall during that period been playing like a top-five player with – a final in the World Tour Finals, final in the U.S. Open, a win in Toronto. Uh, he beat Andy Murray to win Doha this year. So I'm never surprised when he makes a deep run, and he would need to be downright bad for a lot longer for me to count him out completely. It could be if he does make a deep run, it has absolutely nothing to do with this change. He could get some luck in the draw. He could maybe have been having some kind of small injury that he shakes off. Uh, tennis can change in very for very, very unpredictable reasons. So in his case, I think this is a bigger shakeup than most such team shakeups. He was working with the same coach and, and a lot of other team members for a long time, and they had such a close relationship on and off the court. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it were a factor, but I, I think we're going to need more time to see what this new – this new Djokovic looks like. Also, he is still working with a couple of people he had been working with and his brother is around. So th there are a lot of variables to consider. You know, this is also only his second clay tournament. So yeah, putting, putting it all together and making sense of what happens in Madrid is going to be tough. I think we'll need a few more weeks to make sense of the new Djokovic team. It is really shocking that he parted ways with Marion Vida. It's it's almost as shocking as having Rafael Nadal actually split with his uncle. We know that Uncle Tony is scaling down his involvement, but like the degree to which we've associated Djokovic with having Vida on the team is is almost as strong. Do you think, Carl? Do you think that Djokovic would be better off if he still had Boris Becker on staff at this point? I don't know. I, I think they're still kind of informally talking. A, a very strange analogy that occurs to me is how Trump continued talking with Lewandowski, his first campaign manager, even after he technically fired him. I, I think Becker and Djokovic are, are still in touch from what I understand, even well after they parted ways. He could he could come back. I mean, Djokovic has said he wants someone who can understand what he's going through and that he was pretty clear in his implication that he wants someone who was number one in the world and a great player. And Becker is going to be on that short list, especially considering some of the other options are claimed. Lendl with Murray, Moya with Nadal. So um, it's... Lubicic with Federer, Lub of <laughs> Right. Well, you know, a top five player, Master 1000 champ, I won't discount him. Ed Edberg was with Federer. It would be weird, but not impossible for him to go to Djokovic. So... 
you know, Jimmy Connors, I don't think anybody would really want as a coach after his track record as a coach. And I don't know if he'd want to do it again. Uh, McEnroe had worked with Raonic. Uh, you know, that would be an interesting pairing, I guess. And, and he and Djokovic have, McEnroe being a commentator, has, has talked so much about players on TV and in ways they know about. So it's always weird when he then becomes a coach. He's kind of given them all of his insight and maybe some things they didn't want to hear. So yeah, I also, sus- I also suspect that with McEnroe, his name comes up a lot in coaching rumors, and I suspect that often it's because he has planted those rumors. I think he really wants to be more involved, and he made a comment a couple of years ago that he was interested in coaching, but no one had called, and I think he's hinting a lot to try to suggest people call. So if you hear that rumor come out that, that McEnroe might team up with Djokovic, I'm putting the odds heavily against it in favor of the explanation just being McEnroe's interest, not Djokovic. Is there, is there anyone else that, besides the names you've mentioned, do you think would make sense for Djokovic at this point? So, uh, Carol Bouchard, who just wrote a book about Djokovic and winning the four straight slams, says that he reminds her so much of Andre Agassi. I've heard zero interest from Agassi in coming back to tour and coaching, but it it might be intriguing to coach someone who plays so similarly to him and has accomplished what he's accomplished. And, you know, it's also possible with Djokovic that whatever the next relationship is, it's not the kind of coaching relationship that he had, let's say, with Becker, who did travel with him a lot and was in his box. It could be occasional Skype conversations like we're having right now and, you know, reviewing video and and sending some thoughts. So, yeah, I mean, Agassi is incredibly far-fetched, but it, it really is... A short list. Sampras, similarly, I don't think has much interest in being a coach, but he was Djokovic's idol when he was growing up and sort of in the way that Edberg was able to say things to Federer that other coaches had said, but have much more impact because Federer remembered watching him before he was great and, and looking up to him and admiring parts of his game. Sampras would have that advantage too. But I mean, really, we're just ticking off the very few names out there of top players who aren't attached to anyone right now. And it could be that that's the kind of person Djokovic wants, but he can't get any of them. And he goes back to his old team or finds someone who doesn't exactly fit that description. It could be he realizes, hey, you know, at this stage in my career where I'm just about turning 30, I don't actually need a coach with me at all times. I have everything in this brain, in this body. Uh, it's it's so hard to know. And he's he's pretty good about keeping things close to the vest. So uh, my guess is we won't hear until until there's an official announcement and we, 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 unless it's conversations with McEnroe that are leaked, we won't know much until we know for sure. It is interesting to think about the, the market for super coaches, because as you point out, most of the top players have them by now, like Ronich, Federer, Nadal, um, and, and Murray. And we, we've seen a, a number of players or a number of former players, greats, this phase in and out of those super coach roles, including of course, Stefan Edberg with Federer. But I wonder if the if the market is going to become tighter because every player, well, every top player seems to want one at least if they have the budget for it. I, I heard Del Potro say recently that he had been in talks with a couple of players to fill that role, but he couldn't find anyone. I think he specifically Sampras's name came up, and of course, it, with Sampras, it always comes back to the fact that he's not really interested in in traveling, and Agassi's name doesn't even come up that much. And you wonder that as the as the prize money in tennis keeps going up as rapidly as it is, if how many current greats or or recent greats will continue to want to to be in a role like that that requires a lot of travel? Because so we saw Martina Navratilova take a a, a role briefly with Agnieszka Radwanska, and 
I don't really know the full, don't know the story there, but it didn't last very long. I don't think Nevertolova was interested in being as involved as Radvanska wanted her to be. So my point being that there's only going to be so many super coaches out there at a time. And with prize money going up so much, you might have more players who are interested in having super coaches. So I, I don't know what to expect from that over the next 5, 10, 20 years, but I wouldn't be surprised to see not as, some of the players who want them not being able to get them. And as, as you point out, a lot of the, the names that come up the, the fastest when you think of, of who Djokovic would play with are, are either or would, would work with either really aren't interested or they're taken. And that might not leave him a lot of directions to go other than back to his coach who we parted with last year. Yeah, I'd be interested in seeing if they're just names who nobody's really thought about because nobody thinks they'd ever do it, who enter the market and maybe add to the supply to, to meet the growing demand. You know, another name that that I've never heard anyone consider recently is Bjorn Borg, and I assume he has zero interest too, but maybe someone like that could be interested because one of the great things to me about tennis is that these previous generations of stars stay involved. They go to tournaments. They seem to know the current players and stay in touch with the, with what's happening in the game and would at least, I think, take a phone call from any of the top players. Now there's also previous generations. I mean, one of the other great things about tennis is that it seems like a sport that people after playing, stay healthy and alive and involved with the sport with for, for a really long time. So Rod Laver goes to so many tournaments and, and has had many conversations with all the top players. I mean, I don't really think Laver would consider coaching Djokovic. And I think after a certain age, it becomes even more of a drag to travel on tour. And, and it might be even more of a scenario in which if you were involved, it would be occasional remote conversation, remote conversations. But uh, there are a lot of X greats out there if we really expand the the age definition. I, I think I, there was a stat a few years ago that I think is still true, would be worth checking if, after saying it, but that every man who's ever been number one in the ATP ranking system is still alive, and I think not just alive, but, but healthy. And, you know, the ranking system is 40 years old, so we're not talking about people in their 90s, but it, it's still sort of an, an indicator of the the number of generations of players who you'll still see at tournaments and behind the scenes with players and coaches. Now, Carl, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what you're saying here is that Djokovic should call Ilya Nastasi, right? It would be an explosive combination. Uh, he would only have to be able to meet him in undisclosed locations after Nastasi's forthcoming lifetime ban from tennis after his comments at Fed Cup. Yeah, the, the mechanics of that could be a little tricky, and, and I know that... Various fans have issues with Djokovic already, and I can see that going absolutely crazy. So I think we're safe to rule that one out. But you're right to point out that the, the market might be bigger than we think it is. Uh, on the other hand, you do have some other players right now who might be in the market as well. Like I mentioned Del Potro and Nick Kyrgios, I believe, still doesn't have a regular coach. He seems like someone who might sign up with a super coach if they became available um, Alexander Zverev, I don't think, is working with a really big name, and he's he, he could be in a position to to sign up someone like that in the near future. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that all all pans out over the next couple of years. Yeah, and Curious has said something like, "Everyone wants to work with me. I've heard from everyone. If anyone denies it, it's because I've told them no." So it, I, that's part of the cockiness of Curious that I love. But if that's true, that would 
support the idea that there's a bigger supply than people are letting on if the, the right player is available. That's true. Although I, I wonder if Kyrgios is saying that, I wonder how many of the, of those people who he, who have called him would fall into our super coach category and how many of them are just... Justin you know, Gimmelstab. Yeah, Justin, Justin Gimmelstab. Yeah, we should probably move on to something else before I'm tempted to say anything else about Justin Gimmelstab. Wait, but, so, but just let me just point out one last thing, which is what's interesting to me is Djokovic, Nadal, Federer get to a certain stage of their career. They're among the all-time greats. And then it seems to make sense to them to work with a super coach and not as much before. Murray, even though he hadn't won a slam when he started working with Lendl, was already for a long time at the very top. And I wonder if there's a different dynamic when it's a younger player or a player who hasn't yet made that leap, that it's harder for them to to work with with the super coach, sort of in the way that people speculate that someone like Wayne Gretzky or Michael Jordan can't be a great coach if if they're not coaching players who are as incredible as they are and, and they can't understand why players can't do what they were able to do. So Edberg can coach Federer and tell him to do things that Federer and very few other people can, and similar with Djokovic and similar with Lendl and Murray. And it could be that when McEnroe tells Raonic to do things at net, to McEnroe they're easy and obvious and he's, he's, a, he's a genius. And if Raonic isn't there yet or can't get there, it could be a tougher pairing. So, so that's something also to consider with the demand supply part of this equation. It's also in, in, interesting since, since Djokovic is technically coachless at this point, uh, thinking back to, to the years that Roger Federer was not working with anyone. Like, there was some time where I, I think he had a, uh, he had more of a long distance relationship with a coach. He had no coach for a couple of years. I remember one year, John Wartime uh, gave his year end awards and he gave his coach of the year award to Roger Federer as his own coach. And it, it, now it seems like everyone needs to have someone in their camp, maybe two people, maybe a full-time coach like Marion Vida plus a super coach. But we do have this one huge example in in the recent past of a player who got by just fine without any support at all. I also love speculating that if these guys have a big enough budget, they might want to hire super coaches just to tie them down so they can't go help their rival. So maybe they don't even think they need them that much, but they don't want them advising someone who's trying to beat them in a final. <laughs> okay. I had not thought about that. That would That would make for some interesting pairings or I guess beyond beyond pairings groupings if if someone like Federer wanted to hire away everyone he thought would might be dangerous in the corner of the market raise the prices yeah I mean there aren't that many former number ones so he could he could just get them all I mean he, he just signed up as a sponsor with um Barilla Pasta I think maybe a, a few more sponsorships like that he could have like he could have Guga Querton be his pasta coach. He could have McEnroe be his chocolate coach. All the sponsorships, and he could hire all the coaches he needs. It's like endowed chairs, but for coaches. Exactly, endowed chairs is is exactly right. So, speaking of the the men's field more generally, we had three title winners in two fifties last week uh, in Munich. Alexander Zverev won his first title in Germany in Istanbul. Marin Cilic just blasted through the draw and ended up beating Ronich in the final. And in Estoril, Pablo Carreño Busta um, improved on his result from last year and won the title there. So we have three players who, they didn't come out of nowhere, obviously. All of them would have been in the conversation to win their respective events. But on the other hand, they're 
not players who are generally in the conversation to win a tournament like Madrid or Rome, which will be next week. So, Carl, looking at those at those three players, um, who do you th- who do you think is most dangerous in these bigger events of the three who just won yesterday? That's a great question. I can make a case for all three. I think dangerous specifically, I would go with Chilich, who to me, and this is going to be a really strained analogy, but this is just how I think about him lately. Somewhat like Stan Wawrinka, but not quite as good as someone who on any in any given tournament can, as you say, blast through the draw, but does it pretty infrequently. And when he doesn't, he can also lose really early and really badly. Like you just get blown off the court by a player lower ranked who he should he should beat or at least be playing competitively. And in this tournament, yeah, he he blew through Raonic in, in the final. He blew through podcast favorite Diego Schwartzman in the first set of their semifinal and survived a Schwartzman onslaught late in the second set. And he won Basel last year. He won Cincinnati last year. He's one of the only guys to beat Andy Murray in the second half of last year in the final of that event. So dangerous. I'm starting to remember that I should keep Chilich on my list of guys to watch in just about any draw, but I could also see him losing his first match in just about any draw. The other two, Zverev and Carreño Busta, seem more like consistent threats to go sort of mid-deep into tournaments, uh, especially... Uh, Cranio Busta has had a really good year, and Clay is his favorite surface. Zverev, I'm a little skeptical about. I know a lot of people think he's a future number one, and I certainly think he has a good chance, but he looks still a bit far for me. Maybe I'm making too much of his getting completely blown out by Nadal and Monte Carlo, but he's he seems a step behind some of the other young young guys, especially Kyrgios and team for me right now. It's interesting. I, d- I didn't notice this until I was just checking the draw as you were you were talking about it. That assuming Zverev gets past Fernando Verdasco in the first round, I'm, I'm guessing that match is scheduled for today, but either today or tomorrow. Um, if he wins, he gets to face Marin Cilic. So we get a second round face off of last week's title winners there. And if Cilic advances all the way to the quarters, he is in the quarter of Stan Wawrinka, who you mentioned to compare him to. So. That, that that's certainly a match that could go any number of directions, including very lopsided in, in either way. Um, so, let's see. Uh, outside of those names, who are you look, who you're watching in Madrid this week, Carl? Well, you flagged a really interesting first-round match, Schwartzman-Ferrer, and we talked about both men in recent episodes. They're both best on clay. They're both much stronger relatively as returners than servers. Ferrer, we're seeing some signs of life from him after a really tough start to the year, and I think would both be happy to see him make a push and maybe make a run at one of these lead-up events in Madrid and Rome and then at the French Open, uh, because it it feels like this could be one of his last years, if not his last year on tour, and this is is the, the time of the year when he could really shine. And then for Schwartzman, he's really blossoming this year and playing like the best returner in the sport and has, even in not defending his Istanbul title, had some really great performances, especially returning in that second set against Cilic. So so that that's an interesting one to watch. It could certainly be one of those matches like one we saw recently between, I think, Schwartzman and Batista Agut, where both men win more than 50% of return points and make it feel like the tennis the the format of tennis as we understand it is turned upside down. 
So that's interesting. I think Djokovic and Nadal both being in the same half is interesting. There's a and before decent... you go on, Carl, sorry, sorry to jump in, but I, I have to apologize both to you and our listeners that I, I did make a note to talk about the Diego Schwartzman David Ferrer first round match and. Uh, on looking at the draw, I realized there is no such thing. They are next to each other in the draw, but they're actually, they wouldn't meet until the fourth round. Schwartzman opens against Albert Ramos, which is also, I think, an interesting match. Ferrer gets Mikhail Kukushkin, and they're in the same section of the draw as Nishikori and Sanga, so it's extremely unlikely they would face off against each other. But I, 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 do, I do think both players will still be interesting to watch. But, Carl, is it, as now that that's out of our way... Um, <laughs> <laughs> back to you. You're, back you to real to tennis. Rafi, you wanted to talk about Rafael Nadal, who also is a bit of a threat on clay. Yeah, you've really got to watch that guy. I think I think there are good results coming from him. Djokovic and Nadal are in the same half. I, I think Nadal has a much better chance of making the, that meeting in that semi than Djokovic does of, of reaching that meeting. I I would love to see them play. I mean, Djokovic and Nadal have not played for quite a while, and it it would be exciting to see them play leading up to the French because then we would have some, something to look for if they are again drawn in the same half in the French or, or meet at some point in the French. So, yeah, that that's something to watch. And, and I hope at least that's true, if not the Schwartzman-Ferrer uh, digression from before. Yes, you can trust most of my notes, just apparently not the... the I, I just got so excited at the thought of Diego Schwartzman and David Ferrer playing each other or just Schwartzman playing at all. Um, and just to, to to add on to your mention of the Djokovic Nadal half, people talked for years about how boring it was to have the big four. Of course, not everyone. Some of us love the big four, but there was this constant undercurrent of chatter about how how boring it is in men's tennis to have just these four players and and no one else really competitive with them. And we finally have some players, especially Stan Wawrinka, but some others who who are in a position to to challenge a lot of those guys. But now, of course, as I mentioned to kick things off this week, Djokovic has struggled. Murray has struggled. I mean, here we are previewing a Masters event, and we haven't even mentioned Andy Murray's name 20 minutes into the conversation. So it, it, this is how, how far they've fallen. So in a, in a way, you kind, of, you kind of miss the big four days where you could, you could expect at least two or three of those guys to show up at any big event playing really, really well. And you could you could pencil in these two guys for a semifinal and you knew either something crazy would happen early on, which would be interesting, or you'd have this thrilling semifinal to look forward to. And unfortunately, like there is plenty of interesting things in the draw, but unfortunately you can't, it it wouldn't be shocking to see Djokovic lose in the, the round of 16 or the quarterfinals. And even if he does make the semis, it would be interesting to see, but I don't think we're guaranteed a great match. Yeah, I don't want to over-sentimentalize the Big Four period because there were certainly some duds. There were matches that weren't close between them and matches that were but weren't very good. So it wasn't a guarantee. And I, I think many fans don't mind at all the greater unpredictability. Uh, it, it does feel a little like a March Madness situation where if you root for underdogs early in a draw and are excited to see more chaos, then you could have mismatches later where a, pl- a player or a team that outplayed its level to get to a semi then plays a top competitor that is playing like a top competitor and just blows them out in what should be the highest profile, most interesting match. So I think on balance, we're probably getting weaker matches later on. But the, the a meeting of Nadal and Murray or 
or Djokovic and Nadal wasn't wasn't always a, a close one. And and that also gets at is it interesting to watch one guy playing at one of the best levels of all time, even if the other player isn't, and it's a blowout, or is it only interesting if it's competitive, even if the level isn't quite as high? That's true. I, I do think we've been able to count on some really good clay court matches among the big four in the last couple of years as Nadal's level has come down a little bit, and Murray in particular has gotten stronger on clay. Because Looking back at the, I think it was a Monte Carlo semifinal between Murray and Nadal last year, really great match. Uh, not Nadal's best tennis ever on clay by any stretch, but that actually made it a little better. And I think it's still possible Murray could produce something like that, but of course he needs to, to prove a lot before he gets to that point. So if he doesn't, then we could end up with another match like what you mentioned like with Monte Carlo a couple weeks ago. Albert Ramos was the surprise, but Albert Ramos in a final against Rafael Nadal, like, it ended up being just as much of a dud as, as we probably expected it to be. So speaking of... Just before we move yes. completely off the big four, one thing that I think also makes that period feel attractive relative to now is that the trend has been in the last couple of years that even if not all four are, are there or if they're all there, but one or two crash out early and are not playing that well, that generally still one of them wins. So that that sort of lessens the potential advantage of the unpredictability and, and the the more evening of the playing field, that it only takes one of them playing well to still generally win. And even if none of them wins, which still is an exception, it it's usually another older guy who wins. And anyone who follows me on Twitter is probably sick of this joke I have of anyone born 1989 or, or later ha- having not won any title at the master's level or above. But I'm going to keep doing it until one of those guys steps up. So certainly... You'd hope if some or all of these four guys who are pushing 30 or over 30 are fading, that it would be someone in the younger generation who's stepping up, but it's often Vavrinka or Chilich or Del Potro or someone else in that older group, Ferrer, for a while, who's picking up the slack and not one of the relative youngsters. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so speaking of, let's see, fields um, hollowing out great players who are still winning, older players who are still winning. It's a rather strange segue, but it is time to talk about the women's draw in Madrid. And it has been particularly chaotic already. Just a couple hours ago before we started recording, uh, Karolina Pliskova lost to Anastasia Savastova. Last night, I think it was, Gabini Muguruza, the reigning French Open champion, lost to Tamiya Vachinsky, a match that she really, really shouldn't have lost. And... The big event so far has been Maria Sharapova, who needed three sets but got Pachalucic Baroni uh, and ended up begging her actually in the final set to set up a second round match with Jeannie Bouchard. So, Carl, talk to us about this Sharapova Bouchard match. What do you expect from these two different sorts of idols? I expect Sharapova to win easily uh, to talk about the tennis first. So Bouchard was quite critical of Sharapova and called her a cheater for having used Meldonium when it was on the banned list. And in fact, Sharapova was found to have cheated and to be sent off tour for 15 months. She served that time and Bouchard is not one typically to stand down from controversial comments or actions. And she says it's just going to motivate her more. But I think just on a tennis level, Sharapova has played really well since her return. She 
did lose the first set to Lucic Broni, but finishing with a bagel is, is a strong result against a player who's had a really good year so far. And, you know, her one loss was a very tight one to a player who's had an even better year in Christina Mladenovic. And Bouchard has had a really tough year. Just the fact that she made this meeting surprised me. I mean, she'd barely been winning matches at the tour level. So I think there's going to be a lot of drama around the lead-up to the match, around the handshake at the end, and not that much excitement in the tennis. Although I do expect Bouchard to play her usual aggressive game and hit a lot of great shots. I just think she'll miss too many, and Sharapova will hit too many good shots for it to be a close match. Yeah, I... I, that's pretty much what I'm expecting as well. Bouchard is really struggling. She entered a, an ITF 100K in the U.S. a couple weeks ago, and I think she got, it was Victoria Duval, I think, who, who beat her pretty badly. So the fact that she's she's taking on Maria Sharapova, presumably one of the one of the best players in the game right now, it's it wouldn't be an interesting match if it weren't for the drama behind it. And think that's what Bouchard is kind of banking on in her career right now. If she gives us enough drama, we might continue to care. But well, I don't. Really I don't want to be too hard on her because she did have that injury, the, the strange circumstances at the U.S. Open, and it's kind of been since then that. I mean, I can't draw a straight line from there to since then, but it, it, she hasn't really had any great results since then. She was off tour for a while afterwards, and. It could just be that she's not physically 100%. I mean, players all say they always are carrying injuries and are never 100%. But certainly her results after having been a Grand Slam finalist a few years ago at Wimbledon suggest that she's not playing She's not playing with the same level of fitness and, and health that she was. That's true. It, it's tough, though, to feel too sorry for her. Like We don't know what she's doing in the background. Of course, she could be working very hard, but... Whenever her name comes up, it has something to do with usually something other than than tennis on the court or training for tennis. Like she's in the swimsuit edition, or she's outspoken about some player in a, in a way that other players aren't. Like it, 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 I think she's making it harder than it needs to be for for fans to support her if it isn't if it is in fact a, a difficult time for her uh, and she's struggling to come back. Perhaps. I mean, I, I don't begrudge anyone taking any commercial opportunities they have, and we still live in a world that objectifies women, and many people find her to be an attractive woman, and uh, these are opportunities she has. I remember Wozniacki wrote a, wrote a letter to her former self where she made the argument, people will, will tell you you should say no, should tell you to, to focus on tennis, choose say yes to everything you want to say yes to, you won't have these opportunities again. So... Maybe that means we shouldn't feel that sorry for a player for not having their best tennis results if they're optimizing for other things. But I just want to say it's it's reasonable to optimize for something else if that's just taking full advantage of whatever opportunities you have while you have them. And I don't want to, I don't I don't want to say that I'm not blaming Bouchard for making some of the choices that she has. But what stuck out to me when the swimsuit edition came out. I believe the, the magazine came out during the week of, of either Doha or Dubai this year in, in February. And coincidentally, that was a week when Wozniacki had made a really good run. Um, she, yeah, she, she made the final in Dubai. She made the final in Doha. So right about that time when it was all in the news. And I don't think Bouchard played either of those events. And of course, that wasn't exactly when the, the photo shoots took place. But that just really highlighted it for me that... It's not Bouchard's fault that she's taking these opportunities. It's not her fault that she gets more attention than a lot of other players do. Um, but you can get all that attention, and you can take these other opportunities, and 
maintain a really high level of tennis. And we wouldn't be having this conversation if if, if Bouchard were even like playing a top 20 level of tennis right now. And it might be that the injury is why, um, but we don't know that. It seems it seems equally plausible that she hasn't worked as hard as she needs to work to, to get back to that level. Uh, and and that, that's where my complaint would be, if in fact that's what, what's happening. Yeah, and you know, her to bring it back to where we started, her opponent in this match has proven that more than just about anyone, Sharapova, with having many off-court activities and, and businesses, and also Serena Williams and Venus Williams, even though they got criticism for it before, clearly have managed to remain near the top of the game despite all the things they do outside of it. Now, one thing that, sticking with Sharapova here, one thing that's interesting about the draw, this is something that you and I talked about last week or the week before, that Sharapova is not going to have a very high ranking for a while. So she's she's kind of like um, the, the ultimate wild card. Like You could have this former number one playing at close to a number one level, dropping anywhere in a draw for the next several weeks. And even though she... she faced a pretty low seed in Lucas Baroni in the first round. She's facing a non-seed in Bouchard in the second round. She is in the section to draw Angelique Kerber next, the, the top seed, even though she's not, people wouldn't think of her as a favorite on clay, I don't think. And as, as we're talking about this, I just checked the score, and as we're recording, um, Katrina Siniakova is serving for the match in the third set against Angelique Kerber. So we might not get a Sharapova-Kerber match. Um, and... As I mentioned earlier, we've had some surprises already. I didn't mention Laura Ziegemund uh, continuing her great form and beating Joanna Kanta. I didn't mention Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova crashing out in the first round uh, to Sarana Kristea, and that was after Pavlyuchenkova winning 10 straight matches on tour, including beating Kerber and winning the Rabat title a couple a couple days ago. So, so Carl, do you see anyone stopping Sharapova in this tournament? I, you know, Mladenovic could do it again. Zygman beat Mladenovic and maybe would, would bedevil Sharapova with her drop shots, which we talked about extensively last week. I I certainly could see her not winning the tournament and just struggling again to have to win lots of matches, one more than some of the top seeds would have to, although there aren't that many left. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to see anyone else as the outright favorite. One of the things you pointed out when we were talking about Sharapova's return is that it's particularly fortuitous that she's coming back during the clay season, not just because she's been so good on clay recently, but because so many of the top players haven't. And a couple who I think we both identified as not at their best on clay, even though they've been having such a good start to the year, were Kanta and Pliskova. And they both had pretty dreadful starts to the clay season. And the clay season is now almost done. There are really only two big events left for, for those two. And Muguruza is someone who obviously had great results on clay in the past, had beaten Serena Williams twice at the French Open, won the French Open last year. And she's been a non-factor so far in clay. She hasn't won a match. So it, it's, it's really an opportune time for Sharapova. And it's really an opportune time for these tournaments that uh, that she's in the draw. I mean, there was all the debate about her getting the wild card and the justice of it, and one of the big responses was, well, for the, the good of the tournament, she, she ought to be in the draw. And now we're seeing, we were worried that she'd be the one to shake up the draw, but often it hasn't, she hasn't really knocked out any of the top players or faced any of the top 10 players yet. It's been other people who have been knocking them out. And you mentioned it's Kerber's section of the draw. It's really Sharapova's section of the draw now, and maybe Sharapova's draw now with so many names exiting so early. 
Yeah, it, it is. I'm still watching that score to see if we get a final on Kerber. But it, it, if Kerber does lose, then who we have left at this point is is Kuznetsova, who's in the top quarter, so she could face Sharapova in the uh, in the quarterfinals. And we also have Simona Halep, of course, who just destroyed Kristina Pliskova yesterday, like 6-1, 6-2 or something. And we do still have Dominika Sibylkova, but she's been hurt, so she's also not usually a big threat on clay. So I, I wouldn't really pencil her into the semifinals or anything. So it, it's pretty easy to look at the draw right now and see something like a Sharapova-Halep final, which I personally would be okay with, especially if, if Sharapova did not bring her best game. But, yeah, the, the, main, the main takeaway from all of this is just how chaotic it is. It, it's really tough looking at a draw, even before the results come in, before these upsets start happening, and pointing to a top player and saying, you know, she's going to be around on Thursday or Friday. Um, certainly not on, on Saturday or Sunday when the finals take place. Yeah, so so just two other two other points that that are in the same vein. One is that the number one player on the, in the WTA right now, according to the rankings, is idle. Has been idle for four months. Will be idle for at least another seven months. Serena Williams is is number one, or at least in the in in terms of you know who'd be number one right now based on live points. Uh, certainly, if Kerber ends up losing, and you'll you'll let us know if she does. And th- that that gives you a sign, kind of, of of how spread out the ranking points have been among everyone else, and also maybe you know something about this, but there is something a little strange about how early Madrid starts, especially for the women. So the two tournaments on the WTA last week ended on Saturday in Prague and Rabat, but Madrid had already started the main draw on Saturday, and I'm not surprised that, for instance, both Rabat finalists. Uh, Pavlyuchenkova and Schiavone were out in the first round because they were asked to play a day or two days later. Uh, do you do you know why there is that that format in Madrid? I know in the past some women and some fans of women's tennis have complained that in Madrid and Rome women kind of get second billing and that feels like kind of their matches are are gotten out of the way before the biggest days of the tournament. So I don't know if that's the reason or if there just isn't capacity to have it all in a week or all in eight days, but I don't think that helps at all in terms of giving the players who are playing well on clay a chance to bounce back from the week before. Yeah, it's certainly not ideal for for players who do choose to play Rabat or or Prague, and it's no coincidence that most of the players who who would expect to to be big factors in Madrid weren't playing last week. Uh, I'm not sure if were any top ten players playing. I'm not sure if there were any top ten players in action last week, and and you can see why. Uh, I don't know know why it is. I think it might just be because because they can, basically. It spreads out the action over more days. It probably means Madrid can sell more tickets, having having two full weekends of tennis. Uh, and they, I think that there is a trend towards the couple of weeks before, or even two or three weeks before slams, shifting to Saturday finals, so that there's a full day off before, like before the slam starts. Especially because uh, the French Open insists on starting on a Sunday. Right. Uh, but as you point out, yeah, it, it made for a really awkward transition for players who, who made the finals in Rabat and Prague. They played those finals on Saturday, and they were playing yesterday on Sunday in the Madrid main draw, and their short flights from the ground they had to cover, but it didn't mean they had to finish They had to finish a final after playing five matches over the course of five or six days, uh, fly somewhere in the evening and be ready to play the next day on a different surface or a, a a different court, uh, higher altitude, 
maybe different balls, I'm not sure. So it's a lot to ask of those players, and, and you're right that it's no surprise that Pavlyuchenkova, Schiavone, Kristina Pliskova is another one who is a, a finalist and, and crashed out. And it also it can even make things awkward for semifinalists because a lot of the players who are going to threaten in WTA internationals need to play qualifying at a tournament like Madrid. So Sara Arani, for instance, she made a run to the semifinals in Rabat. She was entered in qualifying. Uh, most qualifying actually started on Friday for the women in Madrid. So she obviously couldn't make it to qualifying in Madrid on Friday since she was playing a semifinal in Rabat on Friday. So she played her first round match on Saturday. I think she actually she lost her first match. But had she won, she would need to play her, her second and final round qualifying match later that day on Saturday. So it it seems like it hugely stacks the deck against players who choose to play the week before, which in itself is is a bit odd because it seems like the WTA is always struggling or setting up incentives to get better players to show up for these internationals. And if I were a player with a chance of winning an international this past week, there's no way I would play. It seems like such it seems like such an inconvenience at best and a disadvantage at worst. Um, if you do actually succeed and, and reach the semifinals or finals, agree. So we're not going to make this the all Sharapova all the time podcast, but we're going to make it the Sharapova quite a bit of the time as long as Sharapova is in the news. So one thing that this is of personal importance to both Carl and I is the qualifying rounds at Wimbledon, which are not technically at Wimbledon. They're at Roehampton. I forget the the Bank of England Tennis Center or something like that. So they can keep the, the, the courts at Wimbledon pristine until the start of play. And there is the possibility that Maria Sharapova will not get a main draw wild card, but she will have the ranking to get into qualifying. And related, maybe not related, who knows, Wimbledon has announced that for the first time they're going to charge five pounds for admission to Wimbledon qualifying. In the past, it's always been free. Australian Open qualifying has always been free. U.S. Open qualifying has always been free, as Carl and I well know. Carl, as someone who's who's been to Roehampton, spent a lot of time there, how do you feel about charging five quid to get in there for a fan? I feel really sad about it. I think it's it's a great free event. It's a great way for hardcore fans to be rewarded and people who aren't hardcore fans but are willing to go check it out because it's free and, and it's it's a nice day out on the lawn even if they're not into tennis. It, it just it has a wonderful environment. Uh, it, players and coaches and and referees and umpires are just circulating together out on the lawn with fans. You can wander around the grounds. It, it, there's a very open feeling. So it's free in more than one sense. And to have, you, you need some kind of barrier to entry. You need someone enforcing that rule, collecting the money. It, it just doesn't seem worth it. I, I can understand the idea of capping the number of people at the grounds. And maybe the feeling is if they need to do that anyway, they might as well charge. But, and, and I see the need in particular with Sharapova if, if she were to make it. But in that case, they could have waited to see. I mean, there's a chance that her ranking would be high enough to get into the main draw. Uh, I don't remember exactly when the cutoff is, but I think if, if she made a run these next two weeks, that could be the case. So it, it it just seemed like an unnecessary step to charge. It would raise not very much money. It might dissuade some people from going. And I think, as you pointed out, uh, there are many ways for Wimbledon to make 
or maybe it was Ben Rothenberg. I don't remember. Somebody on Twitter pointed out there are many People ways. Ben and I confused all the time. Yeah, many similarities, especially in how you play tennis. There are so many ways that Wimbledon can make the amount of money we're talking about and does make that amount without even thinking about it. It is such a lucrative event. There's way more demand for people to be able to get in than there are tickets for the main event. Making a couple ten thousands of quid at qualies just doesn't seem necessary. In fact, they, they used to collect money for charity at the entrance and people would give all the time. And I imagine people will give less now. So I don't even think all of the uh, new ticket money is new money. So yeah, it's, it's disappointing. I mean, in the grand scheme of tennis, it's not that important. Not that many people went even when it was free, partly because it is kind of hard to get to, but I'm just sad to see it because I think qualies are a great way to introduce people to the sport. I mean, in a similar way, challengers will often charge a couple of bucks for early rounds and often just doesn't feel worth the effort. Why not just make it free and not have to uh, enforce the admission and, and leave it totally open? I think you would just get more people and get more goodwill. Yeah. And you touched on something I wanted to amplify a little bit that the courts at Roehampton are not easy to get to. Like it's not even that they're, they're a little bit inconvenient. Like it's a long way. I've, I've gone on public transit a couple of years. I, I drove to one day last year and it's, it's really far out of the way. And if you're driving, it's, it, it's a pain to, to park and just to get out there in the first place. Traffic coming back is going to be horrible. So I w I would be curious just how many people would show up, even for Sharapova, because obviously, yes, you'd expect more people to come, but there's such a high barrier that may, maybe you're right that, that this is just a way of capping the numbers, but the sorts of people who are going to make the effort to go, five pounds is nothing. It, it's not going to, to, to keep people away. And a more realistic barrier is just the nature of the venue. Like, there's, there's only a couple of courts with even... A natural sort of seating area. There, there's no real seats at any of the courts out there. There's just a couple of courts that are on the side of a hill, or near the side of a hill, rather. A court on the side of a hill would be an issue, but a court near the side of a hill where maybe a few hundred people could could gather. So, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's just a head-scratcher to me. Yeah, I think it costs more than five pounds for the round-trip train ticket if you're coming from central London. So, so yeah, it's, it, it's, yeah. A, it's a silly thing to do. Like, maybe if they charged a lot of money and made that area around whichever court she was playing on, you know, more, uh, less that you needed to actually have paid to get access to be that those very few seats where you can see that court. Well, that might've made some sense and they could have made the rest of the grounds free. So it just seems premature and not that well thought out. Am I right that she could theoretically still get in directly? Does she have time in terms of the entry cutoff? We haven't reached the entry cutoff yet. I don't remember whether it's... It, I think it's still two weeks away. So I think that her Madrid points and her Rome points will will count. And if she you know, wins Madrid, then that's it right there. I haven't looked at the various scenarios, so I don't know if... I don't know exactly what she needs to do these next two weeks. But as we were just talking about 10 minutes ago, the, the nature of the draw is such that it's, it, it's certainly possible. She'll be in the main draw, and then people will be paying five pounds to go watch Tim Smichek, which, by the way, is totally worth it. But I'm guessing that the numbers of people who would show up would really not justify the cost of the, the security and the ticket takers and all that. 
if it were just a regular year of Wimbledon qualifying. You know, just looking at the rankings, I think if she makes one semi in these two weeks or two quarters, then she's basically in in Wimbledon if you're right about the cutoff. So it, it would be quite a shame if, if they made this move. And it, I'd, I'd give her at this point a pretty good chance of making it in if she, if she gets to use points from both weeks. Well, I hope so. Um, I really do. I'm, as I've probably said before, I'm, I'm never, I've never really been a Sharapova fan, and I'm not much of one now. But I, I do... I do like having the best players in the draw every week, and there's no doubt that, that she belongs there. So so I hope she's in that main draw. And, of course, if she gets into qualifying, then she'll probably make the main draw that way as well. But probably better for the better for the tournament to have a, a fresh and rested Sharapova ready to compete uh, when the main draw begins. So just a couple of other things we wanted to touch on this week. Um, we've been meaning to talk about this, actually, ever since the podcast began, is, is the state of American tennis on clay, which in general is pretty bad. Um, usually you have some Americans who are contending in Houston because you know, half the draw is Americans, so you just by the law of large numbers, you're bound to have somebody win a couple matches. Um, but then when he gets to Europe, you have players who don't show up, players who show up at the last minute and lose a first-round match. But it's gotten a little bit better. Uh, we had CeCe Bellis, who made the quarters in Rabat last week. She beat Daria Gabarilova in her first-round match in Madrid yesterday. So she actually, I mean, that's a, that's a big step for, for a, an American as young as she is. And even the generation after that, Amanda Enisimova, who's 15, another American, she won the USCA wildcard playoff for the French Open. So this 15-year-old American has played on clay well enough to, to justify a position in the French Open male, main draw. Uh, and Carl, you also pointed, you also made it in our notes that Ernesto Escobedo, um, American man, qualified for Madrid. He's been playing well on clay. Um, the women typically have been a little more successful than the men. What do you think the problem is for, for American men uh, winning on European clay? I think some of it is that the typical trajectory for a young American a boy than man uh, getting better at tennis has typically been on a hard courts and often fast hard courts with an emphasis on shortening points and being more about aggression than about defense and a lot of attributes in addition to the surface itself that don't translate as well to clay. But it, it's also become a bit of a chicken and egg problem where if you don't play a lot on clay, you're not going to be good on clay. And then you're not going to be good on clay. So you're not going to want to play a lot on clay. And even when you do play, you don't get very many matches because you lose early. So I really give credit to the players who rather than just take a vacation or do whatever they're doing, rather than playing some of these tournaments are giving it a shot. I mean, Ryan Harrison had a really good start to the year and I really like his attitude and saying, I'm, I'm going to go take advantage of my ranking and play some of these tournaments and see how I can do. Now he, he made a quarter last week in singles, which doesn't mean much in that he got a withdrawal from Del Potro, a walkover to, to get to that quarter. And then he got bageled in the second set by David Ferrer, but he did win a doubles title with Venus from New Zealand and that, you know, he is at the level in the rankings where entering doubles draws makes a lot of sense. We can get more matches if he loses early or can't get into tournaments. And it's great to see Bellis out there. I mean, she's she's someone who I'm surprised to see just turned 18 because 
we've seen her a couple of times win matches at the U.S. Open, so I, I've thought of her as a more established commodity. But yeah, she's decided to go pro and is maybe one of the most promising of the of the teenage American women. And to see her grinding on clay early in the season is a really good sign. I, I imagine she's going to be trying to uh, make it into the French Open through qualifying. Uh, Escobedo is, is great to see too. He He's really gunning for that next-gen, birth in the next-gen finals, and he's now fourth in that race. So it's, it's names not like Isner and Query who are out there. Sock is, is, is there in Madrid and that's good to see, but he could have, he could have come over earlier as well. I mean, the, the Monte Carlo draw was pretty much empty of Americans. So it's these, this next tier of names and, and maybe eventually that will reach the other players or maybe they'll just kind of age out and maybe this next generation will be more open to clay. I mean, I, a couple of years ago at the French open qualities, I saw Jared Donaldson win a couple of matches and, really uh he he said that he loved clay and had had played a lot on clay growing up so i'm hoping that the overall attitude of the american development program will shift toward working in clay earlier both in development and then in playing more matches on the stuff yeah one thing that cc bellis said um maybe after her match against gavrilova was that she felt pretty comfortable on clay and she gave gave the credit to these european European, in quotes, European clay courts at the Lake Nona Complex in Florida, uh, the USDA center there. And it, it, that's a big step for the USDA to be to be building courts that mimic European clay. But it seems to me like an incredibly obvious one that if you want players to succeed on a surface, well, they should probably practice on that surface before they turn 19 and finally make a main draw somewhere in Europe. Uh, and there's there's no... Now, there's no genetic reason for it. It's just the fact that there's no clay courts to play on, or not very many clay courts to play on in the U.S., and most of them aren't the real thing that you'd play on in South America or Europe. Um, you mentioned Jared Donaldson, who trained for several years, I believe, in, in Argentina. So he had the experience of playing against guys who knew how to play in clay courts, playing on real clay. Uh, and, yeah, you developed the game for it. And I don't know how to test this from an analytical perspective. I think you'd need to have too much. You need to have more information about juniors than we have. But it's it seems to me that it's a lot better developmentally to learn to play on clay and then deal with hard courts rather than learn to play on hard courts and then deal with clay. So any step the USDA made in that direction, I think, would would be a big plus. And Short of that, it would be nice if more players would follow the lead of Ryan Harrison and just show up. Um, now you mentioned you mentioned with with CC Bellis that she was very promising as an eighteen year old, and you mentioned she might she she'd presumably be going to try to qualify in in Paris. And I think you might be a little bit behind on just how well CC Bellis' season has gone, Carl. Um, she's in the top sixty. She didn't have to qualify for Madrid. She definitely won't have to qualify for the French Open. And in her position of, I don't know if it changed this week, but last week she was at number 59 in the ratings, making her the only player in the top 100 who hasn't yet turned 19. Um, even among all teenagers, she's top five behind some names who we've heard a lot about, Kazakina, Konya, Osaka, Ostapenko. So it's really encouraging that, that she's comfortable on clay because she's proven herself already to be, to be a threat, certainly a big threat in another, with another couple of years of development. Um, she's proven herself to be that big threat on hard courts uh, already. 
yeah, and I, I really like her game and her attitude, so so that's good to see. And Anisimova, if I'm saying that right, has made three finals on clay already this year, granted not at WTA level, and she all three of those finals went to three sets. She she won a lot of easy matches on the way. And so for a 15-year-old to be showing those kinds of results on clay is really encouraging. Yeah, it is. I, I really wish I could have seen, I, I think it was the first of those finals in Brazil. She she played, Anast- I think it's Anastasia Potapova, who is Russian and also very young, might also be 15. Uh, the Russian won that one. but She just both- turned 16. But she, okay. she was 15 at the time. Okay, um, so so another really major prospect. I think she might be the junior number one. Don't quote me on that, but um, but it, that's the level of player who Anisimova is is losing to at this point, and she's coming very close. I I watched Anisimova's match at Miami. She got a wild card there and played Taylor Townsend in the first round, and Townsend ended up winning, but it was also really close. I was super impressed by Anisimova uh, with you know, her her competitive skills, just her all-around game. And I I think if she had caught Townsend on an average day, we would have seen her in another round or two. Townsend actually played really well that day, too. But, but yeah, I think for a 15-year-old, Anisimova is, is outstanding. And wouldn't expect her to do much in, at the French Open, but I'll certainly be watching. So will I. So, Carl, is there anything else you want to touch on this week before we wrap things up for Episode 6? I just wanted to give closure to fans who had heard the report that Kerber was, was facing a loss. She stormed back against Iniakova. She won 7-5 in the third. She had a great escape like that in Indian Wells and then lost soon after. So I wouldn't necessarily point to this match as the start of a clay renaissance for Kerber, but it was a good comeback. It was a good win, and it increases the chance we'll see a Kerber-Sharapova match in Madrid, which I think would be exciting. Yes, Absolutely. And that means that Kerber's done all she has to do. All we need now is for Sharapova to, to beat Bouchard. Um, Siniakova is an interesting case as well, since she seems to find herself in a lot of matches like this where she'll she'll get close, maybe serving for the set or the match, and, and it ends up being very topsy-turvy. I remember a final in Tokyo, I believe, last year. She played Christina, I think it was Christina McHale, and it just went back and forth like crazy for two and a half hours, and McHale seemed to be a little stronger. Siniakova has, uh, people have been excited about her as a prospect for a couple of years, but it seems like she does have these patches where she, she lets her foot off the gas or just starts spraying errors all over the place. And obviously we weren't watching it because we were recording this during the match, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to find out that's what ended up happening in those last few games against Kerber. So by the time you're listening to this, we might be set for a really blockbuster match at the top of the draw between Kerber and Sharapova. Um, by the time we record next week, wouldn't be surprised if there's much bigger news to talk about uh, with the entire Madrid draws complete and Rome draws already out seven days from now. Um, but let's wrap it up here. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you, Carl, for Thanks, joining Jeff. me. And we will see you next week.